Hi, and welcome to episode six of Sacred Science, Gleaning Wisdom from Science and Religion. Thanks for joining us for this conversation today. I'm Rabbi Jeff Middleman, founding director of Sinai and Synapses. How do scientists think about religion? And how do religious leaders view science? What are the misconceptions each side has about the other, and how do we break them down? And since people trust their own expertise, be it scientific or religious, what responsibility does that entail for those leaders? These were a few of the questions we discussed with Professor Elaine Howard Eklund, who is the director of Rice University's Religion and Public Life Program in Rice University's Social Sciences Research Institute, and is a Rice Scholar at the James A. Baker Institute for Public Policy. She is the author of Science Versus Religion, What Scientists Really Think, and most recently, Varieties of Atheism and Science. This conversation was recorded on January 19th, 2021. Welcome, everybody, to the sixth episode of Sacred Science, Gleaning Wisdom from Science and Religion. I'm Rabbi Jeff Middleman. I'm the founding director of Sinai and Synapses, which bridges the worlds of religion and science. And I am thrilled to be sitting here with a friend and an advisory board member and one of the preeminent sociologists on the on the world of religion and religion and public life, Professor Elaine Howard Eklund, who directs the Religion and Public Life Program at Rice University, which uses religion research on religion to build common ground, common ground for the common good. Over the past several years, Elaine's research has explored how scientists in different nations understand religion, ethics, and gender. Most recently, she and John H. Evans of the University of California in San Diego have received a $2.9 million grant in order to create a new subfield of sociological research examining how identities and beliefs are related to attitudes about science and religion. Um, I've got to learn from Elaine now several times. She's the author of multiple books that really break down a lot of misconceptions about science and religion. And so, Elaine, I'm thrilled to be sitting with you uh, here this afternoon. Thank you so much uh, for having me and, and just for the work that, that you're doing. It's, it's really needed. Well, as, as we were talking before we were on air, I said, you're, you're the one who actually does the work that is so crucial because so much of this conversation, and, and we're recording this on January 19th, so the day mm -hmm. before a new administration comes in, Part of the challenge in, in America right now, and we talk about this all the time through, through Sinai and Synapses, is this false perception that we are living in a world where there's two poles, that one side is viewed as scientific and educated and liberal, and the other side is viewed as religious and uneducated and conservative, and there's misconceptions. There's actually a lot of research that at least you can confirm or deny if this is accurate, but that we tend to demonize not actually the people in front of us, but our perception of what the other side is like. So we tend to attack the straw man argument. And a lot of the work that you've done in, in uh, evangelical communities and in scientific communities, helping to break down that misconception and to be able to say there's actually much more common ground than we might expect. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about some of the findings that you found about science and religion and, and what surprised you in some of that work. Yeah, well, I think the, the top level finding in the past 15 years I've been doing with the team at Rice University's Religion and Public Life Program work on what scientists think about religion and what religious people think about science. And 
if you were going to sum up, I hate to do this because, you know, I want to keep getting funding for my work, but perhaps some of our work can be summed up in about one sentence, which is there are more religious scientists than you might think. Um, but that has just, just kind of profound implications because people tend to see uh, religious people and scientific people as two different communities, two different camps. And there are people who have a foot in both worlds. And I think that's extremely important. And that's just, of course, the, the tip of the iceberg of um, findings about um, that really have broken my own stereotypes about the scientific and the religious communities. So, you know, it, it's interesting because a lot of what we're grappling with still dealing with, with COVID of the power of religious leaders being able to advocate for science of being able to say, wearing a mask is saving a life, getting vaccination, getting, getting vaccinated, encouraging your congregation to get vaccinated. That's saving a life. In a lot of ways, it's a little bit easier to have a religious leader be an advocate for science. I'm curious, where do scientists come in? In, in a lot of ways, I would think they would be a little bit hesitant to, to share what their religious out you know, what their religious outlook would look like. Yeah, I think it's really important right now um, for scientists, especially those scientists who are themselves persons of faith who are involved in religious communities, um, to speak out of their identities as religious persons. Um, we found over the years through our research that people are likely to trust those that they share at least a partial identity with and so it's important for um, scientists who can connect to religious people who are not scientists to share openly about their religious identities, especially in these times. Um, I think there's never been a more important time in my lifetime, at least, um, for scientists who are persons of faith to, to speak up and say, um, look, I'm a scientist. I'm going to help my faith community translate the scientific information well. Um, I think that's particularly important. And, you know, when you talk about sharing identity, I think that's a key piece because people, it's a little bit of a tautology, but people trust who they trust. Um, they're going to they're gonna trust their leaders who have been speaking to them and have built a relationship over decades often, whether that's somebody in the scientific community or in the religious community. I think one of the challenges of science is that almost by definition, it's very specialized and you've got to have a lot of expertise and I don't understand precisely how and why vaccines work, but I'm going to trust what Anthony Fauci or Francis Collins are going to say rather than the Facebook post that someone shared there. Um, but being able to say, I, I trust this person. I have a shared identity with them. I have a shared connection with them. I think can allow a lot more trust to go in both directions here. I think that's exactly right. I, so finding that out, my, my friends in social psychology um, have taught me that people trust people that they know. And so I think you put it just right. People trust people who they trust. And so for, I would say about the first 10 years of my career, I was super focused on trying to get the right ideas out. And I think, I think excellent information is needed. It's never been more needed. Um, but uh, I have found also through social science research that 
um, it's important to build relational bridges with people first. And that's really flipped the way that I've done things. And I've stopped just doing my research and started also um, doing work through the Religion and Public Life program at Rice University, where we actually um, lead a lot of conversation groups. We in uh, typical times when people could meet together, we would um, have people to my home and to others' homes um, to have a lot of conversation. And then after we get to know each other, then start sharing information. And so we need these kind of relational bridges and then to build those bridges and then pass the information over the bridge. And so that's why it's really important to talk about these shared identities because hopefully people will understand that they're in the same kind of community, right? And they will trust people in their community. So people start to be a little bit more open with multiple facets of their identities and start to build bridges relationally. Then I think we can get um, more and better information out to people in or far reaching expansive and in ways that will truly be heard. Were there any statements or phrases or ideas from all these different conversations that surprised you to hear words coming out of a scientist's mouth or surprising to hear a, a person of face mouth like wow i was not expecting that person to say that and that's wow i'm still thinking about that years later um i think that we have found um that people had a lot of stereotypes about scientists and who they are and so um, there were religious leaders and religious leaders who are educated people who have um, multiple degrees, but just have not had very much exposure to science in the scientific community who have been genuinely surprised um, to find scientists that are themselves persons of faith. So that's been a huge surprise. Um, there have also been um, real surprises across political differences. I know that's it's really touchy right now, and we just have so much hatred being thrown around in our society, and we need to name that. Um, but we did, we have found over the years of doing these conversations that people are surprised that they have commonalities with people who are in, from a different political persuasion. Um, that's actually been shocking to some people. Um, I don't, I, I usually know everyone who's in the room when we do these conversations, but I don't tell people too much about each other. We usually just say people's names and if people want to say an organizational affiliation or a profession, they can but they don't have to. I want people to come together and to really know each other as human beings first, and then to start talking about their work and the kinds of organizational affiliations and leadership positions that they have. And hopefully those kind of relational ties um, will lead to an openness um, to sharing information. And even I'm um, trying to figure out how we can set aside differences to reach commonalities. There's not very much public conversation right now about commonality across differences. And I'm really hoping that some of the work that I and others are doing, that you're doing, um, shows that people can relate across differences and work together on common issues. Um, you know, there were, <laughs> I remember one conversation I had with an academic colleague who said, wow, you know, at your home, I met this um, religious leader who was really concerned about poverty in Houston and alleviating poverty. And I was shocked. I had never met um, a, a religious leader, a conservative, um, the academic colleague said, who is concerned about poverty. I didn't know conservatives could be concerned about poverty. And I thought that's a win. Right. And I think that's, there's all sorts of different ways of framing the question so that it 
achieves its goal, right? If the goal is, and, and we talk about this a lot through through our work, is do we want to be effective or do we want to be right? And I think too often we want to be right and we're not as concerned as, okay, let's actually try to achieve the goal that we're trying to achieve here. And one line that I always love that that is used in community organizing, which is asking people, what keeps you up at night and what gets you up in the morning? And that opens up those kinds of conversations where it's a personal story and they find, right, I'm, I'm, I care about this because my mother grew up in poverty and had to work three jobs to be able to put food on the table. And I care about that issue. And that would never have come up if it, if the conversation starts talking about a minimum wage and, or abortion or, you know, all the hot button issues, that's going to, that's actually going to pull people away, but being able to say, tell me a story of what, what keeps you up at night, what makes you nervous and, and what, what gets you up in the morning, what, what energizes you, what excites you. Those are different kinds of conversations where you can build those, those kinds of connections and relationships there. I think that's right. And we, I want to be clear with the listeners that um, building common ground doesn't mean that we pretend differences don't exist. Um, I think a little bit about, you know, some of the, your listeners um, have done a lot of research into psychology and trauma, and there's lots of research done on families where, that are not healthy. And sometimes the mark of a of truly unhealthy organization, a truly unhealthy family is, you know, behind closed doors, um, we are mean to each other, or abusive to each other, but then we pretend it's all happy to the outside world. And so building common ground is not that. It's not pretending we're all happy to the outside world when really we have um, deep differences. Um, it's not pretending that um, injustice doesn't exist. I know your organization is very concerned um, about issues of justice and um, thinking um, about Judaism and its relevance to injustice broadly, which of course Judaism has a rich, rich tradition to think deeply about these issues. And so it's not, it's naming injustice, but it's also having coming um, to others with a sense of humility and saying, I, I should not pretend that I know everything that there is to know about you. Um, there are things just because you're another human being walking around in this world with different experiences than I have, that there are always things that I can learn from the other that will make me better and make me do better work in the world. And so for us as leaders, creating those kinds of communities and spaces where we can openly and honestly talk about injustice um, and pain that's just everywhere in our world right now, but also have a spirit of humility, a spirit of learning from the other. Well, and one thing that we would love to be able to learn a little bit from you, because this is something that, that you know much more about than I think many of us do. I think a lot of people who are watching and listening here come from the Jewish tradition and, and focused on a lot of questions of Judaism and social justice. And so know very much about Judaism and, and how it, how it focuses and what its emphases are. And one thing that I honestly did not even really know the, di the, the difference between until maybe five or six years ago, which is the difference between evangelical and fundamentalist, because that's not something that a lot of Jews understand the distinction of, or difference of black evangelicals versus white evangelicals and different 
uh, people of color and and where Catholicism comes in and and different Christian traditions as well and and other other uh, non non Abrahamic traditions also. What are some of the ways in which we're seeing different religious traditions interact with public life? Um, because you know we talk in America very strongly about and, and Judaism as well about the importance of the separation between church and state. That's something that a lot of Jews understandably feel very strongly about. But I don't think you can disentangle religion and politics. Um, and I think we need to be able to understand how do different religious communities view different kinds of political and public issues. Yeah, that's a complicated question uh, about which uh, many books have been written. So <laughs> I'll try to describe it in three minutes. <laughs> so, um, but I, so I think some, some big principles here is that um, most people are not using their religion in politics in the U.S. So um, a lot of Americans are not very politically involved. Um, many think that they're, for good or for bad, I'm not sure that's necessarily good, but I think the reality is that a lot of people are not using their religion in politics. A lot of people think religion and politics should not be connected. But you do have some very loud voices. And what happens when voices are really loud is that people start to think that those opinions are much more numerous than they really are. Um, louder often means bigger cognitively. And that's not usually, that's not always the case. It sometimes is the case. It's not always the case. Um, so something that's been interesting is that until um, the past 40 years or so, um, evangelical Christians in the U.S., so those who are, you know, think that the Bible um, has authoritative um, import in their lives, think that salvation um, comes through Christ and that there is the possibility of salvation and care a lot about individual salvation. Those folks didn't, weren't really very involved in politics at all, actually. And interestingly, um, Billy Graham, a Democrat, was the first really openly evangelical, I'm not Billy Graham, um, Jimmy Carter, well, I'm in a different world here. Jimmy Carter was the, the um, first openly evangelical president, a Democrat. So, so we have like this kind of wonky thing that's happened over the last few years where um, rightist politics and white evangelicalism have become a very much intertwined. I would also add with that, um, that is a particular kind of far right politics. And it's often very disconnected from actual church participation. Um, my colleagues and I call um, these folks sometimes Fox News Christians. Um, Christianity as a particular kind of identity that merges with a particular type of um, right far-right politics, and it is not um, something that necessarily leads to more church attendance or more involvement in a community. Um, those who are very involved in churches who are evangelicals um, tend actually to have a more mixed views about social issues, tend not to have um, very black and white views about social issues. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So it's almost as if the act of being part of community um, tends to moderate folks a bit. So you might um, think that evolution is not necessarily accurate, but think that we should believe scientific information about climate change, for example. So you, you don't have just polar um, views that there's things that they, they kind of are case by case, issue by issue. 
And, uh, and it sounds like also the more people are involved in church. And I see this actually in a little bit of in my friends on Twitter, my rabbis, who, uh, my rabbi friends who are on Twitter, who are also very involved in a lot of interfaith work tend to say, look, if you read the New Testament, if you read Christianity, it it tends to be pretty liberal, right? That's, you know, if you were to read of taking care of the underprivileged and and helping the immigrant, right? There's a there's a lot in in church teaching that talks about that. And it sounds like the more who are people actually involved and, and attending church and learning the lessons tend to be sounds like more moderate and and some there actually there's there's a, a decent chunk of left-wing evangelicalism that i think is is often absolutely. overlooked absolutely so um about one in five um evangelicals would think of themselves as democrats and so um, and those folks are are not, you know, getting a lot of press <laughs> right now. So so that's that's kind of interesting. There's a kind of nuanced view there, um, which is not easy. It's not really a soundbite kind of view, if that makes sense. And so then that makes it harder to communicate about um, mainline Protestants. Um, so those who are, uh, you know, part of historically the Presbyterian traditions, Methodism, Episcopalianism. Those folks do tend to lean left politically as well. Um, and they tend to have a bit less church attendance and participation than evangelicals do. Um, but those folks tend to lean left. Um, these are both groups are largely um, white um, evangelicals and um, mainline Protestants to some extent although evangelicalism has been massively changed by recent immigration post 1960s by especially those who have migrated from East Asia um, and from South America who are really changing literally the face of evangelicalism and Catholicism in the US and the mainline traditions to some extent as well. And those folks um, tend to be all over the map politically. And I'm, yeah. I'm Curious also, because there's been some data from Pew and, and some other places as well about identification and, and attendance. And that's that the, the story, I don't know if this is accurate, this is why I'd love to hear from you, but but the, the story that's often told is that um, more right-wing religion um, tends that, those numbers tend to be going up, more mainstream and left leaning religion that there tends to be a lot lower attendance and the largest the largest growing group is the nuns the n-o-n-e-s um which doesn't mean that they're not religious it means that they're not connected with a official religious community here is that picture that we're seeing in the media is that an accurate picture and and how does that play itself out in terms of questions of, of science policy, of general public policy here? That's a couple questions in there, I know. Yeah, so um, the nuns and um, those who are um, evangelicals do both seem to be growing to some extent. And um, the nun, those who have N, I always like to say N-O-N-E, not N-U-N. Of course, N-U-N are, are Catholic nuns. Um, those who say that they have no religion are, are not necessarily atheists. They're not necessarily those folks who were not raised with a religious tradition. So they may have a religious tradition um, in their past, some kind of attachment to religion. 
And they may often um, consider spirituality to be very important in our lives. So definitely an increasing number of people who consider themselves spiritual, but not religious. So those who want to think about things that are um, a part of the higher order, um, very concerned about higher order questions of meaning, say that they have spiritual practices like prayer, uh, meditation, other kinds of spiritual practices. So those folks are out there as well. Um, and so it's not, uh, I always like to say as a sociologist of religion, it's not that religion is necessarily decreasing, it's complexifying. Um, so it's becoming more complicated, more, co more complex, and in ways that I think are very interesting and in some ways um, more thoughtful. And I think it depends whether you see the glass half empty or half full. Um, the, the usual institutional church um, is definitely changing form, potentially declining in some corners, but alongside that is um, a, an increase in black and brown people in institutional churches, in institutional church leadership, an increase in the number of people who are spiritual and having reflective conversations across religious traditions. And so there's a lot going on there um, that I think we need to be attuned to and to think through deeply how these dynamics have an impact on public life. And I think COVID is also impacting that tremendously because religion, almost by definition, is in person, it's physical, it's communal, and and it's it's interactive, right? When you're when you're it, it's coffee hour, it's kiddish, it's that's where it, it's visiting somebody who's died, it's going to a wedding, right? That's where those things happen now with a lot of COVID, there are elements where like we're having this conversation by Zoom and there are elements where there are relationships that can get built, but it's a, it's a much more of a one to many. And, and I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm wondering and seeing are there are some churches and synagogues that have tremendous, wonderful infrastructure and probably more people gravitating towards those kinds of experiences versus the smaller churches and the smaller synagogues um, they're, they probably have their same group that, that are, that are there, but it's probably harder to attract new people into that community there. Absolutely. And I, in our tour of the religious landscape, um, we didn't get to the piece of the conversation about, um, the historically black church in the United States and just the impact that the black church has had on civil rights. Um, as well as on current calls for um, racial justice, which we've never seen um, really. We're in a sort of a second almost civil rights movement right now, which is extraordinary. And in related to what you're saying about COVID, um, those churches that are populated by um, black people, the historically black church, we call it in um, sociology of religion, um, those congregations tend to be smaller often um, they tend to be um, also often in the poorest um, communities in our country. There are certainly wealthy black megachurches. Um, we have some in Houston, um, but typically the historically black churches are in the poor communities. They are also what we might call first line. We, we talk a lot in our society right now about fr frontline workers. These are frontline organizations. So when there are natural disasters, when there are um, po there is poverty, massive poverty in a community. 
these kinds of congregations provide a lot of practical help to people. But in the current state of our society um, for going on a year now, these are also massively under-resourced organizations that have not been easily able to transfer to doing everything online. They've not had the money, they've not had the technological resources. And so um, some of the work that we've been doing in the Religion and Public Life program is we've been trying to um, you know, bring in scholars and religious leaders and think through um, what does it mean for um, churches and um, synagogues and other kinds of religious organizations to join together around common efforts? Um, how might they um, do technological outreach to one another um, in a way that's useful or have Zoom conversation with scientists um, from the communities in order to um, transfer um, excellent information about COVID and what that means practically for religious organizations. Um, so all of that's, you know, all of that's going on and I think is really important to remember and especially how um, other kinds of social stratification like racism and we're seeing gender discrimination come up here in massive ways as the disproportionate amount of care work um, resulting from COVID has been taken up by women. And so, so there's a lot, a lot going on that we as those folks who care about religion and society need to be thinking about. I, you know, I'd love to hear a little more because you mentioned and you, and you referenced a few of these of the ways in which religion is complexifying and, and ways in which is there, there, there are going to be some, some losses without a doubt and there are going to be some potential gains and, and maybe even unexpected gains. And, and that's one of the things of, of a, when, when there's a pain point, we don't quite know, are we going to grow and rise from the ashes or is the thing just going to die out? And, and you don't know in that moment until years later. I'm curious, would love to hear what are some of the ways in which you're seeing religion becoming more complexified in American society right now? I think that it's really hard for congregations that um, we might call the historically white church. Um, we don't usually like to be called that. And I know um, a lot of white Christians um, right now, myself included, are embarrassed and ashamed by the ways in which the white churches have not stood against racial injustice. It's harder now to get by um, without having hard conversations. And so I think that's um, can potentially be an up from the ashes kind of situation that you're that you're talking about, um, Rabbi Jeff. And it can also lead to a kind of discouragement that people don't know how to go forward from here. There are some people who are, you know, engaged in a deep sense of mourning at being involved in institutional Christianity, being involved in historic and present day racism and looking around for models for a way forward. And I think that there can be a lot of goodness that's coming forward from this time of racial reckoning. So that's one thing that I think is very important to name. A second thing is that um, the, the religious organizations, and I'm sure have, I've seen this a lot actually in, among synagogues in Houston and um, in churches and mosques, those are the three traditions that our program engages most closely with. Um, 
that there is a sense that the pace of technology within religious organizations has jumped ahead about a decade. <laughs> that, mm. you know, even relatively small organizations are saying, like, we need to be providing live stream of our services to reach people who are um, at home and can't get to the actual service. Even after COVID, we're going to continue doing this. We're gonna get the right technology. We're gonna train people. We're gonna keep going. And I think that's opening up a lot of doors for people to think through um, how to do things creatively, technologically, and in a way that's relationally deep. I'm sure you can tell me as a religious leader um, yourself a, few, a, a thing or two. So I feel like I'm speaking a little out of turn here. No, I think, you know, it's what, like, you know, stuff, you know, I'm sure about that. Well, that's, I think what's, what's interesting is that religious communities build, there's two kinds of relationships. There's the thick kind of relationships and there's the thin kind of relationships and you need both. Um, you need the thick relationships of the people that you're really close with. And when, when somebody's sick or when there's a baby that's born of like, who's going to show up and, and do the work. And, you know, our synagogue as a lot of synagogues, um, observed Martin Luther King day, and there were wonderful social justice programs and, and really trying to be able to say, we are going to do elements of, of, of work here, but there's also the kinds of the thin relationships of, of, of getting to know people that you may not know otherwise, right? And, and what happens when there's a Democrat and a Republican who are next to each other and having that kind of, of just greasing the wheels of that kind of conversation ensures, I think in many ways, it ensures society continues to function because where, where we are right now, particularly with COVID, of everybody is in their echo chambers and we're not we're not interacting. We're not having, you know, any kind of real argument. The arguments, the best kinds of arguments are the ones that happen in person where you can see the body language and you can see how you're reacting. But now you can just send a tweet out and get everybody angry and somebody else becomes angry in response to that. And the, so the argumentation, I think, has become so, so toxic because we've lost the ability to, to have those kinds of in-person conversations, or at least COVID has accelerated that. That is exactly right. Um, I One of the things that um, I and some other faculty try to do is when we get a snarky email from a student or another colleague, we try really hard not to respond. We try really hard to pick up the phone because those kind of things can just go on and on. And what I just, the example I just said is magnified times a thousand with something like Twitter. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, there, there needs to be, and I, I think, you know, perhaps I'm too optimistic of a person by nature, but I do think there that this can provide a space for ethical reflection about how we use social media um, in these times in a way that honors um, each other's humanness, that we are not thinking deeply about um, these as relational tools. And so there's, this is where religious communities, I think, um, have a lot to say and are spaces where we can really be leaders in how to use social media and um, all kinds of media technologies well. So the technology piece, I think, is enormous. And it sounds like you all are already doing a lot of that kind of reflection. And then I think another big thing, so racism, technology, and then I think thirdly and um, is that COVID has brought to us the, the realization of just how much care work women do. 
and um, for um, black and brown communities that is magnified enormously. And so even as women who are relatively wealthy and leaders have had to take on you know, the brunt of care for say those of us who are fortunate enough to have our children be able to you know, have great internet connections so that they can go to school online, still um, all those interruptions are being taken on you know, of course, by single mothers, which who there are so many of, um, but disproportionately by women. And what are religious communities who have, which have tended to be quite male dominated um, historically and presently, there's certainly exceptions of a lot of creative gender egalitarian work going on in religious communities. And I wanna, I wanna be honest about that. Um, but still, I think this has is made it impossible to ignore um, the disproportionate um, care work that women do and what are religious communities going to do about that and how are they going to address that well. Um, even as, as men working inside the home now is then I think also then provided moments of reflection and space, this is the positive, right? Space for reflection for them, uh, them as well. And, you know, and, and looping back to something you mentioned earlier, which is we're, we're looking for common ground. And sometimes if we do common ground too quickly, we're paving over the big differences. We're not having those kinds of hard conversations. And thinking about Martin Luther King yesterday that, uh, you know, I, I was struck that that there was a study that was done by 60 something, I think it was in 65 or 66, which was were, were um, sit-ins and civil rights movements, were they helping or hurting um, the, the the phrasing was was the Negroes cause, right? Because that was the language that was being used. And 85% of people said that was going to hurt the civil rights movement. 85% um, of people at the time thought that what Martin Luther King and, 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 and the whole civil rights movement, they were actually being counterproductive. And, and there are lots of people who are tweeting out these wonderful phrases of um, quotes from Martin Luther King from, from right-wing people, not recognizing that a lot of what King talked about was um, universal basic income and voting laws and all of these, you know, it, it, someone, someone did a, a very funny thing of where they had uh, Clippy from Microsoft Word that said, hi, you're quoting Martin Luther King out of context without grappling with the long history of American racism. Would you like some help with that? Because it's, it's very easy to be able to send a tweet out without really struggling of what has happened with, with racist racism in America, gender disparity in America. We want to be able to say, oh, can't we all just come together? Isn't this all fine? And and we're not realizing that, wait a second, we're now grappling with the same kinds of questions that people were grappling with 50 years ago. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, and sometimes those hard questions need to be grappled with in communities of others who share an identity with us. Um, and sometimes they need to be grappled with in communities of those who have different identities. So meaning that sometimes women need to grapple with these questions together. Um, sometimes men and women need to work together um, and to hear each other's stories. And I think there's really space for both. And in the ideal sense, um, those who um, share a moral community who are part, as many who are part of the same religion do, um, can be those kinds of safe spaces. And so you know, how can we, as a, those of us who are religious leaders who are listening, provide that kind of leadership to start those conversations, um, recognizing, of course, that we probably have issues we're dealing with ourselves. 
Well, and, and you know, one, one thing that's also interesting that I'd love to unpack for a little bit, I'll also let people know that if you've got questions, you can type them in the chat here. Um, but one of the interesting things that you've unpacked in a lot of, of your work is how evangelicals view science. And what's interesting is when we think about how do evangelicals view science and you phrase it that way, it's probably going to be like, yeah, I'm not so sure about science. I'm not so great about it. I'm not sure. But then if you ask about very specific kinds of things, they tend to be either neutral or even positive about that. And so, um, so thinking about technology, thinking about um, different elements of climate change, there are different aspects of um of reproductive genetic technologies and being able to, if you ask evangelicals very specific questions, like, oh, actually, that's something I could be, I could be behind here in this kind of way. How does that change the conversation if we if we move from the religion versus science to looking at what is going to be an effective way for me to use social media in my in my synagogue? Um, what should I do if I've got a um, a, a, a woman who's struggling with infertility and I need to be able to talk with my rabbi or my minister. And I'm also talking with a doctor, right? Like there you are. How can it be more helpful to be thinking about these questions on a more granular level? Yeah, I, I actually wrote a, a recent book, which, which I think you know about specifically for Christian communities called it's my first book for a specifically a religious community. So I'm kind of stepping outside of my scholarly role a little bit. It's called why science and faith need each other eight shared values that move us beyond fear. And I felt compelled to write that book because I personally have been part of churches all my life. And I thought, wow, I maybe have a responsibility to translate some of this research to the kinds of communities that I've been a part of. And I'm really hoping that um, maybe someone else can write a book for the Muslim community in the US and maybe someone else can write a book for the Jewish community. So um, I do do comparative work in that book, but it's really specifically for a Christian audience. And the reason that I did that is because I do think people need good translators. So they need the rabbi and the minister um, to translate what the scientific issues mean for them in their moral community, um, in their specific situation. Um, science is um, a set of research, a set of facts, a set of ideas. Um, science doesn't tell us what to do with science. Um, for that, we need someone else. We need other kinds of interpreters. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to try this out and write this little book um, that's specifically for um, Christian audiences and hope that, you know, maybe I can be in conversation with the future and someone else will write a book for another religious audience. But I think those kind of interpretive works are really important. So that's one thing I would say. The second thing is that um, it, you said this really nicely, um, Rabbi Jeff, in the beginning of the conversation, that people generally don't think of science or religion um, they think of particular relationships. So the scientist that I know, or my idea of a scientist, or the religious leader that I know, or the religious person that I know. So I think it's really important to see science and religion, not only as sets of ideas, but also as communities of people, and communities of people that can have shared values. Um, humility is one that I focus a lot on in the book, for example as one of the shared values between the scientific community and, re and some religious communities. This idea that 
Um, there's always more out there that we don't know that, um, you know, community, you know, both Jews and Christians use the phrase, God is God and I am not, right? There's something larger than myself um, that I'm finite and God is infinite. And so there is that also that shared principle in science where we're always just having a little bit of knowledge of how the natural world works and there's always more to know. And that sense of humility, I think, too, can be used as a principle to bring these communities of people together. So this idea that we need translators and then also we need to see each other as people, as being part of communities and start thinking about looking for the shared values that we have between communities. And, and if I remember, one of the things that's referenced, and I think the, it's the last of the eight values, is you talk about shalom, and, um, and which connects to the Hebrew word of shlemut, of fullness and, and wholeness and harmony. And I think one of the things that's important in thinking about a level of, of shalom, of, of peace, and again, this, this links with, with Martin Luther King Jr.'s work, which is that that there's no peace without a level of justice. That's right. And, and, and it's not an empty piece of, can't we all just get along? We're here, la, 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 everything's wonderful. And because it's not wonderful, there are a lot of problems here. And being able to, to say, um, there, there are real differences here. We need to be able to engage in these kinds of conversations. I need to grapple with, with the system that I've been a part of and being able to say uh, that, that, we can have differences and, and still come together um, without papering over the differences here and, and being able to be fully rooted in who each individual person is um, without, without just saying, let's just all be, be peaceful and ignore all the problems here because, because there needs to be a level of justice before there can be a level of peace. That's exactly right. And I've learned a lot from the Jewish concept, you'll correct me if I'm saying it incorrectly, but tikkun olam, um, this idea of world repair. And so to repair the world, um, we need to know what needs repairing, right? Um, repairing the world is not pretending, <laughs> you know, it's not pretending that the world is already repaired. And so and we, had, we had a conversation actually, um, a conference uh, about eight months ago on the values from um, the book, the, the Why Science and Faith Need Each Other book. And some who were in attendance found it odd that I talked about justice in the same chapter as I mentioned this idea of shalom. And the point of that chapter is that both scientists and in the case of the book that I was writing, Christian communities um, do um, try to make the world better. Um, They're very interested in um, seeing a sense of peace in the world. And that, and so some in attendance kind of pushed back and said, why would you talk about justice? And um, I think exactly for the reasons that you just um, said so well, that we absolutely need to clearly and truthfully recognize what's wrong with the world and, and to name that um, before we seek to repair the world and look for peace in the world. And that's a lot of where science comes in too, of trying to be able to see, and, and religion as well, of seeing the world as it is to be able to transform it into the world that it could be. That's right. And, um, and, and yet we can't do that without understanding what is the world right now. And I think that's part of the, the challenge right now is that we're living in entirely different 
worlds right now where, where we're not even agreeing on what's actually factual, what's in front of us, uh, in front of us right now. So, so some of that is how can we create a level of, of shared, of shared facts. And I think that's, that's been a, that's been a, that's a challenge in, in not just the religious community and not just, I don't think it's that much of a, an issue in the scientific community, the way we would normally think about it, but it's definitely an issue in the larger American society right now. I think that's exactly right. Um, and it's, it's important to, to remember that that world repair is a, a long haul game, right? It's something that um, we have to think of as not quick fixes, but um, as, as long haul and um, done in, in community um, together. And so um, we have in our religious communities the capacity to activate a lot of social good if we live towards the highest ideals of those communities. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, in Judaism too, there's, and I've, I've, I've not always loved when, when tikkun olam, which I, I strongly believe in and love, has been, um, it sort of subsumed, subsumed all forms of doing good. And in Judaism, there's the element of tikkun olam, of repairing the world, and then there's also acts of, of gimilut, gimilut chasadim, acts of loving kindness, mm. and, they're, and they're separate, right? There's, there's, there's a difference between delivering soup for at a soup kitchen, which is absolutely needed, and that's an act of, of loving kindness, versus advocating for structural social changes to try to prevent people from needing to have soup kitchens at all. And so, yes, that's right. Um, and so I think that's I think it's important to be able to to use the language accurately and, and effectively um, because it's all about making the world better. Everyone wants to make make everyone's life. Uh, a better place, but I think there's a difference between between justice and charity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, so there's a question that uh, that Razor asks: How much does the belief that Christianity is the one single truth impact various Christian ideas about science? That is, do some of these people not feel that there's always more that we don't know in religion, and thus aren't as open to the same thing as science? That's an interesting question. So. Um, sort of this idea that uh, it's a social psychologist talk, um, I can't remember right now, sadly, what it's called, but this idea that there's kind of a, it's a, it's a very binary, it's, it's something like binary thinking. So there is, you know, you have, it's either good or bad, it's right or wrong, um, people who can't think with very much nuance. And I think actually the answer is found um, not through letting go of Christian thinking, but leaning a bit more deeply into it. <laughs> um, that in the deepest um, theological works that I've read, um, the idea of humans as being so incredibly limited um, that there needs to be a deep sense of humility actually gets us around that and makes us much more open to science and even provides a reason to do good science because you know that there's always more to know um, and that it's not that we can't know anything, but that our knowing is always incomplete. Um, so that's how scientists who are Christians have explained it to me. And I find that kind of a, quite a compelling answer. And, and I love the idea. I find that, that starting with conversations about what don't you know of a level of humility, um, and also I think an, an aspect of, of awe and wonder and majesty. And that's something that I think is a is a wonderful entry point for some of these conversations between religious leaders and scientists. Absolutely. 
And there, there are within all of the, the world's great religious traditions that sense of awe and wonder and beauty um, found in different kinds of conceptions of God um, found in those traditions. And, and within and, and that that sense of beauty and awe is reflected in the natural world. And that provides a reason to study and try to understand the natural world as a kind of gift. And that I found over and over again in my research um, across religious traditions, across scientists from different um, religious traditions who really are utilizing their faith tradition as a reason to do good science because, and as a reason to understand the beauty that's found through their scientific work. You know, one, one question that we haven't had a chance that, to ask, and I'd love to spend just a couple minutes on this, which is, a phrase that's used often in religion and in politics, which is the phrase sacred values. And that's mm. a, a word that's that's used generally very positively. Um, I, I'm not as much of a fan of that because, particularly in the political world, because if it's a sacred value, there is zero compromise you can do about that. That's right. Politics is almost by definition sort of horse trading and imperfect and ugly and you know that's the line of there are two things you don't want to see how they're made laws and sausages right you that 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 being able to understand i'm willing to compromise on this um sometimes that's really valuable and sometimes look this is this is a sacred value and i'm not going to i'm not going to give up on this where where do you see religious communities phrasing and talking about this is a sacred value, which, which, by the way, is used on both the left and the right of what a sacred value is. Um, and when, when do you see religious communities being more willing to compromise? And if they do, are they viewed as hypocrites or weak or, or actually not being as, as, as devout as, as other people? Yeah, I, I shouldn't mention this because we're doing a podcast right now, potentially, but the Religion and Public Life has a podcast too, um, which is called Religion Unmuted. And I, I uh, interviewed um, a woman, Laura Olson, who's a political scientist at Clemson, who I asked a similar question to what you just asked me, so I'm going to steal Laura's answer. Um, people are, are letting right now their politics drive their religion rather than their religion drive their politics. And I thought, I thought that's such a great um, thought, and it's really relevant here, that they are looking at political interest and political power as the sacred value. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and um, rather than thinking about truly sacred values. So, and she, she said, um, as someone who studied religion for several decades, that um, it's not that people are bringing too much religion in, is that they're not um, really leaning enough into the depth of their religious tradition. They're not bringing enough religion in, they're bringing too much politics in. And I, I thought that was such an interesting um, statement that, you know, if you study the really, I mean, we're talking about two great traditions here, Judaism and Christianity. If you study either of those traditions in great depth, um, you can't escape um, true justice. You can't escape um, true humility. You can't escape true um, wonder and beauty and hope. And those are all the things that we see missing in much of political um, discussion. Discussion is too lovely a word to use. Um, political hatred um, that's being thrown around. 
And so it's that we need the right kind of religious values, the values that truly are sacred. Um, and I thought her answer was so good. Um, I've really been thinking about that, um, you know, since I interviewed her about it. And that's, you know, that's one of the, one of the lines of people being able to say, I'm, I am pro-life. And what I mean is that like, from actually from for some people it's from from birth until death right pro-life means healthcare. pro-life means um economic security pro-life means um being able to have access to to women's health right like that's you know pro-life is environmental justice that's really what pro-life is in, in and and so um and and a lot of it is what's being co-opted or or used in ways that make the other side uncomfortable, right? Because if I were to say I am pro-life, that's not going to fly for what actually the word most people think pro-life. If someone says I'm pro-life, that's going to have a whole bunch of markers that that I am going to disagree with here. But being able to say I I am somebody who believes that everyone should have the the basic requirements and needs for a full life from the moment they're born to the moment that that they're that they die how can they find that language in a sacred kind of way um and and there are i think there's there's a lot of a lot of religious backing for those kinds of phrases that's exactly right that's exactly right um and it's very hard to enact them through sound bites um, so right now we need um, more, I mean, I would argue that we need more sacred practice right now, mm. um, that it's, we're getting um, in a space where words are just being thrown around um, in extraordinarily difficult and hateful ways. And so what does it mean? And this is going to be for the religious leaders in our midst um, who are doing such honorable work. What is it going to mean to care well for those who are under our care? in these times and really empower them to live to the fullest extent their true faith practices um, is very, very difficult right now, given all that we're all facing and the suffering and the grief that we're facing. Someone said you know, the, the difference, politics has gone from reality to reality television. And we can sort of understand why that's the case, but reality television is, is what, what gets reality excited with reality television is manufactured drama and all the fights. And that's what gets people engaged when reality is actually kind of boring and a slog and not so easy. And, um, and often there's a lot of agreement also. And so um, to be able to move away from the reality television element of both religion and politics to be able to deal with what's the reality? What are the, what are the issues that we're facing in this world? And what do we need to be able to do to help improve them? And that's, that's, exactly that's a much right. harder thing. That's very hard. It's very hard work. It's very hard work. And it's, it's lifetime work. Um, it's work that you don't just do one day and it's one and done. Um, so I think there's a lot um, here that we can ponder. It's so hard to feel hopeful right now, but yet I, I do see you know, in Houston and other places around the country, there are really, there's really excellent grassroots um, kinds of things going on where people are in communities of practice together and they're moving forward in very positive ways, which I think will make a long-term difference. Well, and that's why I want to thank you for taking the time here this afternoon, because your work is on religion and public life. It's not about presidential politics. It's about public life. And politics is about public life. And, and in less than 24 hours, there's going to be a new administration. But our day-to-day -day lives with each other are actually not going to change all that much, unless we ourselves change them, unless we build those kinds of relationships and build 
um, common ground, what, what our uh, speaker last week, Tanya Lombroso had said, which was charitable ground, um, right. of being able to, to say, I, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And if we're able to do that, hopefully we'll be able to build more of a, of a better public life and a better integration of religion and politics for ourselves and our society and, and the world as a whole. So, um, Elaine, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for the insights that you brought here this afternoon. Oh, thank you so much. Um, and again, want to thank you for the work you're doing. Um, Sinai and Synapsis is amazing and just all that you're doing. So thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sacred Science and the importance of relationships when we enter into a conversation and to make sure that we walk in without pre-existing assumptions. You can follow Professor Eklund's work and the religion of public life at Rice RPLP. Our guest next time will be Dr. Brianna Pobiner, a paleoanthropologist at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. I've been your host, Rabbi Jeff Middleman. Sacred Science is a production of Sinai and Synapses and is part of the Judaism Unbound Network. Sacred Science is produced by Jeff Middleman and edited by Rachel Pincus and Zach Jackson. And to find all of our previous episodes and guests, you can find us at sinaiandsynapses.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're interested in more conversations about religion and science, including articles, blog posts, and upcoming events, you can visit Sinai and Synapses website or follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Sinai and Synapses, on Twitter at Sinai Synapses, or me at Rabbi Middleman. You can also find out more about Judaism Unbound and its offerings at judaismunbound.org. Thanks for joining us. We hope to see you again soon. And Kol Tuv, all good things.